So welcome back to Champagne Rugby Podcast. On today, we've got uh, Joe Tamani with us. So Joe, how are you doing? Hey, what's going on, guys? Thanks for having me. We're doing good, thank you. Hope you guys are well. Yeah, all cracking, all popping. You, you were mentioning earlier that you uh, got up to the uh, Australia-Scotland game on the weekend. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I was uh, luckily invited over um, by Johnny Beattie who sort of helps out with the hospitality scene over there. And, uh, yeah, it was really cool. It was good to, good to see the boys get a win. And, uh, and yeah. So how, how does that look? Does that, does that mean you get to go into the box with the players before and after the game? or you... uh, Not so much. No, not so much the box. I was just there doing a bit of speaking engagements at a, a couple of Q&As at a few of the um, – with the hospitality group, just – yeah. Okay. Give an insight into what I think would happen. So, yeah, I was just talking a lot of gibberish, really. <laughs> was there a few uh, Guinness had responsibility over there, Joe? I can't confirm or deny that. <laughs> 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 but, uh, no, yeah, just a couple. Just, you know, one to celebrate the win, really. <laughs> so it has to happen. But uh, it looked like a great atmosphere over there in the stadium. Uh, what was Murray feel like uh, for you? Playing-wise, oh, man, it was unreal. Uh, last time I played there for the Wallabies would have been 2013 Spring Tour, um, which was bloody hell, almost 10 years ago, um, which was awesome experience, man. Like, probably, uh, oh, I can't really say it's my favourite stadium to play in because I, I, I feel like all the major stadiums here in Europe are just unreal. I mean, you got Aviva in Dublin, Stade de France in Paris is unreal. And then um, what's the one? Millennium Stadium in, in Wales. And then obviously Twickenham, you know, like they're, they're all just like class stadiums, purposely built for rugby. So uh, that's probably why I love it so much, you know. Uh, you actually uh, made your debut against Scotland. Is that right? Yeah, in, <clears throat> 2012 in Newcastle. <laughs> how how did that feel? Uh, first day playing for the Wallabies. Um, it was a surreal feeling, man, because I grew up playing rugby, um, and and I grew up in Australia. So seeing people run out in the in the green and gold was. You know, it was just something that I always wanted to do, seeing it from a young age and then um, loving the game as much as I did. Um, yeah, it was always a dream of mine. And then to, to finally achieve it, have my dad in the stands, watching me sing the national anthem, like those sort of, those sort of things are priceless, you know, like that, that experience that you have with, with your dad there, like, regardless of the result, it was just unreal. It was just a priceless moment, really. Would you say your dad had quite a big impact on as a mentor growing up for, with your career? Definitely. And um, I probably didn't realise until later on in, in life, you know, when, when I uh, sort of moved out of home and finally started to experience what it was like to be an adult. Um, all the lessons, all the life lessons that he sort of drilled in me uh, from a young age, I had to put it to practice because, uh, you know, I was obviously on my own. And at the time when you're a kid, you just don't know 
what he's going on about, you know? And then until you experience something and then you're like, oh my gosh, that's what my dad was, you know, my yeah. dad mentioned this when I was a kid growing up, like I probably should have paid a lot more attention back then. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like the lessons that I learned in life were also the same in rugby. Are you are you still close with with your family? Are they living in the are they living in Australia or have they did the move over to uh, to Europe when you moved over? Oh no, they're still in Australia. So I still got my uh, I got two of my siblings living in Australia. Uh, my sister lives in Melbourne now. My brother's still in Brisbane, and I got another little brother who's actually playing in Romania. He's he's part of the Romanian national squad. Oh, sick. Yeah. So, um, yeah. How does he qualify for Romania? Oh, he's been there for a while now. So he's been there for almost four or five years. So he got in for the three-year rule. Uh, so, so he did the residency. Oh, fair enough. I mean, they did they did change that rule recently with the... Uh, have you seen like the eleg- eligibility rules have changed that if you haven't played for your home country, you could, um, like Australia few, I guess, for mm. a number of years, you can then play for... I, I guess you were born in New Zealand, right? So, yeah. So, good luck. <laughs> but you've, you've got, I've, I've read online, you've got Samoan roots as well. Would yeah. There, would there be any chance you would be uh, thinking about put, playing for Samoa if you got the opportunity? Um, I haven't really thought about it too much, to be honest with you. Uh, especially, I haven't really thought about, you know, putting my hand up for the World Cup. Maybe after the World Cup, I'll. I'll think about it. I just think right now, if I was to put my hand up now, it'd be really unfair for a lot of the guys who have been grafting away for Samoa. Um, you know, in the PNT, like the PNT is a tough comp. Um, and then, you know, say for me to just come in and, and take a position of, of someone who, you know, had done the work and earned the right um, to be in a World Cup squad, I, I, just, I probably wouldn't sit well for me because, you know, I've, I've had a World Cup experience. So yeah. a lot of those guys in that squad haven't had that World Cup experience. So um, I, I'd want them to experience that for their family. And then, you know, if, if after the World Cup they need some numbers or uh, whatever, I'll, I'll definitely consider it. I respect that. Yeah, and... Um... What would be your memories from that World Cup, Joe? You, you would have got to the final and everything. Like, how how did that feel over in England for you? Uh, man, it, it was bittersweet, you know, because to be a part of, uh, you know, a, a squad that got so close uh, to, to winning it all, um, especially considering that, that the favours weren't really in our side to even make it out of the pool. Like, we had we were in a really tough pool. We had England, Wales. Um, the pool yeah. of death. Yeah. So you guys kicked of, us out. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people saying that we probably wouldn't even make it out of the pool. Like, um, and, and then, you know, to get to, I guess, to the final... It's an amazing achievement for the squad, but it just, you know, winner's piss tastes better, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> 100%. But at yeah. least the team you played in that final, like, that's surely 
the greatest rugby team of all time, I'd say. Like, yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, uh, and you know, hats off to them. They, they deserve because they, they've been the form international team for, for years, you know, so if, since the 2011 World Cup, they they'd continue that form right through to 2015. So there's probably a lot of pressure on them as well to actually win that because because uh, of how well they've been playing since then. And uh, yeah, would you right. say uh, would you say that was probably one of the greatest teams of all time in terms of rugby uh, history? Hmm. Well, you look you, you look at that squad and, and you think, do they have a weakness? Set piece was solid. Probably the, one of the most lethal back three. Um, then you had probably one of, probably the greatest captain, arguably the greatest captain. And then one of the best field generals of all time guiding them. Back to back World Cups as well. Back to back World Cups, like they and and they've won everything in between. You know, they've won Bledisloe's, they've won uh, rugby championships. Um, Like, yeah, I, I, it'd be hard to find a better international team. There, Joe, you're saying about how great their pack was, how great their back three was. Obviously, they had character at ten. But like that Wallabies team, you had some great players as well. Like, do you think many of your Wallabies team could have featured in that All Blacks team if there was like um, we obviously have the British and Irish Lions up here. If they made a uh, Australian NZ joint team, like how many of the Aussies would have got into that that team? Would you think? Jeez, it's hard to say. Like, and I feel like this is a loaded question because. <laughs> 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 You know, I, I don't want to come off and saying that uh, and being biased to, towards the guys that I played with because you know they were fantastic players. Um, I mean, like, who do you choose out of my honor or Matt Goodall at twelve? Like, how can you? You know, like it's, and then you know you got guys like oh, Adam Ashley Cooper or Julian Savet, like. It, it's it's honestly just David Pocock or Richie McCall, like you know, like, Israel Israel Falau or Ben Smith. Like you know, the craziest thing is like Bowden Barrels on the bench that game, and he and like he's one of the best players in the world. Like that's how loaded that team was. Like it's it's crazy. Um, yeah, so I. Uh, yeah, I don't think I can answer that question. <laughs> That's so you're uh, telling me it depends if um if Steve Hansen or Michael Check is picking the team. Is that your answer? Uh yeah, we'll we'll say that, hey. Uh, <laughs> or you know, you just give a coin to 15 people to, you know, pick the team. You just flip the coin, whoever lands on, like on on that topic actually of combining nations. Like the Pacific Islanders haven't came together since I think 2004 or five. Do you think something like that would be beneficial for rugby? I know you said you wouldn't put your hand up for this World Cup, but like if there was a Pacific Islanders team and they were touring the Northern Hemisphere, we'd say, would you like if something like that it came back into play? 
Oh, yeah, that would be cool. But <clears throat> I guess then you're looking at who I'm competing with. <laughs> like, there's a lot of there's a lot of good like Pacific Island centers um, and wingers floating around, you know. So uh, the talent pool is massive. So I think as a spectacle for for rugby fans to see guys like think about imagine a back three with like Julian Saver, Israel Folau, and Joshua Tuisova. Like that that back three. That that'd be insane. Right? I wouldn't like to tackle any of them. <laughs> I wouldn't like to tackle any of them. Yeah, exactly. And then on the flip side, I've left out Charles Petel. Like Semi Radradra. Semi Radradra. Like well, like you go center pairing semi Radradra and uh, and Malachi Fikatar. Like it's insane. Like that that I reckon a Pacific Isle team could pack out stadiums. They they would be playing some brutal uh, rugby. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, a lot of those guys are based in Europe now, which means that they'll have a connection to a lot of the fans on this side of the world. So, I mean, could you imagine them playing at Twickenham against England? Like, I reckon they could easily that'd, get eighty thousand. That'd be a sellout for sure. Yeah, one hundred percent. Did you, did you ever go back to Samoa growing up, uh, and have you got family over there? Yeah, so I've got a lot of family back home. Um, the last time I went would have been 2014 when I, I and I took my parents back for the first time in a while. Uh, so it's my parents. Uh, I took my wife and my daughter, my eldest daughter, um, to meet her great grandparents um, and all the family. It was, it was such an awesome experience. Um, and it, it was also a humbling experience as well, just the way they lived their life uh, just made me so grateful for what I had um, growing up and the sacrifice my parents made because the life that they lived growing up compared to the life that they gave me, chalk and cheese, you know. And um, that was probably the, the best thing about that, must, that experience that must have been an extremely heartwarming experience i mean oh yeah 100 percent. and you know I, I can't wait to go back again you know and i take my my younger daughter yeah she, is she okay hey sorry oh. guys if you don't mind i'm doing a bit of babysitting no worries <laughs> at all no worries at all this and is amaria lovely to meet you amaria <laughs> how old is she no. Uh, she's four months now. And do you have two daughters or just the one? Uh, two daughters, yeah. So uh, my eldest daughter lives with her mom in, in Australia. She's 13. Uh, but she'll be moving to France soon, which is awesome. Uh, it would be cool to give her that experience. And obviously growing up with her little sister as well. So and this is Amari. She was born in Japan, weren't you, Dan? Incredible. Uh, with, when you were with the... Uh... Black the the black Rico Rams or the Rico Rams sorry, yep yep with them. And how oh. how was that in in Japan culturally? Was it difficult to adjust or were you had you been previously? Uh, no, so it was the first time moving to Japan, and you know I, I think I had a completely different experience to a lot of the other boys who had been there previously because of COVID. Um, so I was there during the COVID years and it was quite strict, a lot of lockdowns. Um, so I wasn't able to have that full experience. 
but in saying that the people were lovely um and and you know i made some lifelong friends there uh who are who i still keep in contact today so yeah and how how was it having a having start i guess start having your daughter over there did it how did family life take its toll and i i guess it would have been a blessing in many ways but was was there any challenges at all uh in terms of having my baby there or no in terms of becoming a father how was it be, becoming oh. a father o- over that and also for um, the first time i guess no it, it was cool man like it, it was a great experience um <clears throat> you know uh i think where when amario was born it, it was sort of at the end of our season so i i sort of just went into full full-time dad mode when she came so uh, I guess I wasn't coming home from like two-hour training sessions, buggered, and then having to deal with this crime one month old, or you know, I didn't have that. Um, but um, yeah, she's, and, she's pretty easy, baby. And how how is having having had children during your rugby career? Has that made it um, more difficult to play? Because you know, if you get injured and everything, it's you. You're then having to look after your kids as well, and you want to be the big strong dad and everything. Or how how does that take it? Like, how do you feel when um, when you're playing, or you are inspired because you want to make them proud? A, a bit of everything, really. Um, I guess the the things that I've learned really now is just. When I got injured, um, being able to show my vulnerability during those times and and how you know, and dealing with it, um, I think has been probably the the thing I've taken away from that because you know it's it's also a life life lesson for my daughter, my daughters, um, you know, dealing with whatever adversity you might be going through and. You know, they got to see firsthand how I sort of dealt with injuries, and how much how much of an impact that could uh, had on me. Um, and I sort of took it as a way to, uh, you know, uh, showing them how how I would approach things, and and hopefully they took the lessons that that I was trying to teach. And what um. What lessons would you give to any player who would have been in your position injured? Like, uh, because we, like a lot of people listening to this podcast would be players themselves going through injuries. They'd be very hard on themselves. But it sounds like you kind of have a good grasp on it and you might have some learnings for the people listening. Yeah, well, you know, I've had, Bible, I've had my fair share of surgeries. <laughs> um, so I've had a lot of practice. And I, I guess... Like, you know, at the start of my career, uh, I was probably really hard on myself because, you know, when you're young, all you want to do is just play rugby and be with your mates and you feel like you're just letting everybody down um, and, and you just feel at yourself that this happens to you. Whereas as I sort of got older, I kind of just did everything I could to just accept whatever situation I was in um and just every day just try and find something new to learn from uh because every day has its challenges 
Um, so I just try to take take it day by day. Be grateful for the th other things that I have. Like I'm, you know, I'm super privileged, you know, because when I get injured, I'm I'm getting the best surgeons. I'm get I'm working with some of the top physiotherapists. So I had so much to be grateful for. And that's how I sort of started approaching a lot of my surgeries, injuries and stuff is just finding anything to be grateful for. I mean, I, I, I still had, I still got to do something that I love. So as well. Um, and yeah. how is it, how is it over in France now? Is that, uh, it's obviously the second team you've been playing for in France and how does it compare with playing with Montpellier and now going down uh, to the coast of Biarritz? Uh, so, you know, when I first came to Montpellier, it was a bit of a cultural shock. Um, and and there, obviously the, there are a lot of things that you got to get used to. The way of life is completely different to what you used to in Australia. Uh, so that adjustment took, took a bit. Uh, and then so coming back second time around, Having understood all, all of that, I think it's been some, the transition's been so much easier and I've been able to enjoy it so much more. Because uh, when I first moved over to Montpellier, I, I moved, I left Australia when I was 26. So I was still quite young. Um, and probably still had like, a, I had a lot of good footy uh, in me. If I, who knows, in the, in, in the international stage, I could have probably played a few more tests if. If I had stayed in Australia, like you just don't know, but you know, I, I left at 26, and and I still had that desire to play um, top level rugby and whatever. So, but it, it was kind of hard to sort of focus on that when you're trying to also adjust to, to the style style of living. So um, this time around, I've grown to just love it. Yeah, dear Joe, you're on about um, adjusting. Like, what for you coming from Australia, going to France? Like, obviously you've the language barrier, but what other um, aspects did you find difficult to adjust to? Well, for starters, you got to you got to get a binder that's about two two meters long to keep all the paperwork that you need. <laughs> 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 uh, you know, in Australia, a lot of things are. Or all on your phone, you know. You don't really need a, a filing cabinet in your house. <laughs> so there's a lot of paperwork. Uh, oh, you're telling me about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so that sort of stuff, like just just small things, really, like that that you're probably not used to. Um, you know, the the long breaks in between sessions. Uh, you, you have like two hours in between. Your, your next sort of commitments and trying to figure out how to fill that time up yeah. my first go around. Whereas now I'm, I'm 32, I'm loving it. I get a midday nap, you know? Yeah, and the, the French bureaucratic system is, uh, is definitely a bitch, to be fair. <laughs> uh, I didn't say it. <laughs> You're, I mean, I guess you have support from the club, though, that would help with a lot of the paperwork, I'd imagine, with visas and everything. Oh, yeah. Well, see, and that's the thing, right? Like, um, the, the club handle a lot of, like, the big lifting, and yet I still needed a filing cabinet for, like, bank accounts. And, yeah. I, like, here, there's 
one of the things that uh, when I first got here, um, we were looking for a place to live, and they'll go, they would say to me, "It's okay. Well, you need to provide, you need a French bank account and three months pay slip." So I was like, okay, so I'll see if I can get that done. I go try and open a bank account. They're like, "Oh, well, you need a an address <laughs> for your bank account." So I'm like, "Wait, I I need an address to get a bank account from you, but." I need a bank account to get paid in so I can get pay slips so I can apply for a rental property. What do I do? <laughs> like that, that sort of stuff. Like yeah. that was, uh, that was. I'm sure. I mean, when you, when you first went there to Montpellier, I'm sure there was a lot of the South African boys that were also going through a similar problem when uh, Jake, Jake White was coaching you guys and he brought in all the box. I remember watching uh seeing on the social media oh uh montpellier's just sounded signed another south african and <laughs> everything like that and uh how, how was it playing uh, playing for montpellier at this time with all the all the box and a couple of the world cup winners aaron cruden was there Franz stain rampina the jupiter brothers man that's honestly the the best thing about playing in france like these are guys that you probably would never thought you'd get to share a locker room with, you know, and, you know, to be able to play with, you know, the guys that you mentioned and, and form friendships with them um, is, yeah, it's, it's an experience that you, I, I can't, I can't really explain it. Um, yeah. And, and that was real cool to see like the different cultures, the way they, um, go about rugby um, the, you know their, their thought process about how the game um, is played like you're getting all of this knowledge from different different parts of the world and, and it's helping you develop as well when you're saying there the different ways of thinking about the game like obviously as a spectator You'd look at South Africa and say they're more focused on physicality, moving the ball up the field by whatever means necessary. Like, why would you say, like, is the Australian way of thinking about rugby? Um, I'd say the, the Australian way is just just play what you see and have a crack. Um, and have they sort of had have this, like, never say die attitude. And I think that was pretty evident against Scotland. Um, you know, Scotland for me were probably the better side uh, for most of that test match, but Australia just showed this this uh, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, they have this resilience in them that can just seem to yeah, stay stay in the, stay in the game, stay in the arm wrestle, and then um, somehow win games. And then you obviously get props on, like locks putting props through holes, scoring tries, like just uh, things that are just so unexpected. Um, you, you you generally see in Australia, and I think that has to do with the that have a have a go kind of attitude mentality. And where does that come from, Joe? Obviously, we're watching it. We see like Australia are one of the biggest proponents of that blocker move. So for those listening, a blocker be like the second man would run a tight line. There'd be another guy out the back. 
Like we obviously that in rugby league. Do you think there's a big rugby league influence in Australia or? Well, a lot of the boys are rugby league fans as well. So um, I think there is a, there is a bit of a, a, um, a rugby league influence in on uh, running lines now, especially in the modern game. Um, but in terms of like the spirit and how Australia plays rugby, I think that's, if you, have you guys ever been to Australia? Yeah, I have family in uh, Sydney and Melbourne, actually. So you know what, like the like Aussie Aussies are like, you know, they yeah. they sort of they all have that like laid back, have a go kind of kind of attitude, no matter what it is, you know. Yeah, like, yeah. That a guy could just say, I could just go to a dude and say, Hey, bro, what are you doing? Have you do you want to come for a round of golf? And he'd be like, Oh. I've never played golf, but I'll have a go. You know, like that that sort of that sort of attitude is sort of ingrained in, in the people. And and I think that sort of gets shown through through our rugby as well. Like Yeah. I I love it. Uh it's the same whenever I'm traveling, I always come across uh Australia, the Aussie boys. I always hit up a good connection with the Aussie boys and the Aussie girls. Uh go for a is you want a pint, mate, or something like that? Yeah, and they're, they're like that. Good, they're good for a good time. They're good. Uh, like if you ask them to do something, they'll say, "Yeah, I'll, I'll give it a crack." You know, see how it goes. You uh, you started off playing rugby league uh, in high school with with Israel Falau. Is that is that correct? Yeah. So we went to Marsden State High School together. Actually, there was a lot of talent in high school. Um, um, rugby league talent. We had guys like uh, Antonio Winterstein, who played for the North Queensland Cowboys, um, and then uh, Cameron Smith. Uh, do you guys follow much rugby league? Cameron Smith, yeah, he'd have been the Melbourne Storm hooker, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So he went to Marsden State High. Um, obviously, a few years before me and Izzy. <laughs> yeah, uh, he's some player, yeah. lad. Oh. Probably, probably the greatest, greatest rugby player of all time. That origin team when you had like Cam Smith, obviously JT uh, to start your Darren Lockyer, then Lockyer went, and in comes Cooper Cronk. You know, <laughs> like that. That Queensland team was just outrageous. Like. Oh, it's insane, man! And like going eight in a row, like probably something that will will never happen again. Yeah. yeah. Um, this NSW team is good at the moment too, though. You've uh, Latrell Mitchell. How do you think he'd get on playing Union, Latrell? I reckon he'd kill it. I, I honestly like he's he's a guy that just has that natural ability. He'd be a great outside center because um, you watch him in in league when he defends. Really good defender. Um, and I think now the fact that he's been transitioned to fullback, he's getting that sort of playmaking playmaking duties with the Rabbitohs. That sort of will develop his passing game because, you know, generally in regular league, if you play center, you're, you're locked on the one side. So you only really ever pass one way or another. Um, whereas now he's playing fullback, he's sweeping both sides. So he's having to make decisions and throwing passes left to right or right to left. Uh, I think he'd be a great outside center. He has, a, has all the talent to do it as well. I'd love to see it. I'd love he's to a, see it. 
he's a phenomenal goalkeeper. I mean, who knows? It's probably someone in, in France that would pick him up or throw a buck a load of money for him to come over. And for you, Joe, like, would it be um, talk in the dressing rooms in Australia, in the rugby union? Would you like to transition to NRL? Would that be a conversation that gets had? Um, probably. I mean, I haven't been in the in a Aussie locker room in over eight years, so, so. <laughs> I'd assume so. I mean, considering the fact that how much money they're throwing at a lot of these youngsters um, coming up, uh, you know, and there, there probably is there is a fair few guys that could probably chance their arm in the NRL as well. Would you consider it? I've I've had my turn, bro. I'm I'm happy living in. On the side of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, coming over at 26 year old, years old and then staying in Europe for quite a long time. What, what was your favourite club that you played for whilst being outside of the, well, let's say in general, outside, including the Brumbies and then Leinster and all of those big teams? Hmm. I don't think I'll, ha- I'll, I'll have a favourite per se because... Um, Every club got a different version of me and I got to add so much to myself because of the environments that I was in. Um, so yeah, I, I guess, know, I guess, really I guess re- reframing the question so that it's less uh, general, more specific. What was the main thing that you learned about yourself and your style of play and life in general from each of the different clubs? So starting from high school and then going into the Brumbies, what, what were you sort of thinking? And then obviously moving over to Europe and uh, everything that follows. Uh, do you want me to include the two league teams as well? Whatever comes to your oh, mind. However I guess you want I could, to express yourself. I guess I could break it down. Like, so uh, leaving high school, going into a Melbourne Storm system, uh, ultimately taught me how to be a professional. Because they're, they're probably one of the most, uh, in terms of the playing group, they're probably one of the most professional environments I, I, that I've, uh, you know, got to be in. And uh, being a high school kid going into that professional environment, yeah, I had to grow up quickly, um, which also in turn helped me become uh, a good father. Uh, because I had my daughter when she when I was eighteen, uh, so a lot of the, those lessons were, were interchangeable, you know, um, between being a professional rugby league player and, and a father, and vice versa. And then I go to the Gold Coast Titans, which um, was an awesome experience. I got to play with a lot of like, like veterans of the game, like guys like Scotty Prince, um, Greg Bird, um, even current guys who, um, who just retired, like Ryan James and stuff like David Mead. Like, I got to play with some unreal talent and I was also home a lot. Uh, but then I think my perception of being a professional athlete changed my, and it was my own, my own fault. Um, and I probably for lack of a better way to say it, I started feeling myself a little bit uh, when I moved back home and I thought I was better, I was better than I was, which then the game humbled me. 
because I, uh, you know, I, I wasn't playing great. Um, and then I moved away from home back in, and this is when I get into the Brumbies. And again, Brumbies is similar to um, Melbourne Storm. Unbelievable professional uh, environment. But the cool thing about the Brumbies was we had a lot of players that actually went from the ACT. So we really created like a, a family culture. Um, and that's where, why I feel like they're so successful um, is they have that really awesome, like, close-knit family vibe down there. What sort um, of um, what sort of influence did the likes of George Smith, Stephen Moore, Jake White, when you came into the Brumbies team, have on, on that team? Because I remember in, the, in 2013, you guys got to the final and it must have been a really successful uh, environment around that sort of time. Yeah, well, like having Jake White there, when, like, there was a lot of young, youngsters come, coming into that squad. I think, the, like... Like it was like guys like myself, Scott Seo, um, who else was, you know, Henry Spates, Jesse Miles, and Nick White. We're all in our early 20s. Um, and he sort of brought this hard task marks, task master type of uh, coaching, which, you know, as a youngster, we're still kids. We, we probably needed it to stay on track. And then we had guys. Probably one of the biggest influences on, on that team was a, a guy named Dean Benson, who's a head, who was the head of performance there, uh, who, you know, changed the way I viewed my body because, he, you know, my knowledge of how to look after myself was, you know, improved so much because of him and, and then also the medical staff. But, uh, you know, Jake's, Jake's influence was really positive because we had a lot of young guys and we needed that sort of direction and that sort of, you know, that teacher-student type um, relationship. What sort of uh, things was he saying in the, in the locker rooms after big games? Like, do you, do you have any distinct moments that you remember before or after a game where you'd come off a win or come off a, a loss and uh, he was there giving you words of wisdom? Jeez, you're really testing my memory, man. This is the last time I was co- co- <laughs> it's almost 10 years ago now. Um, I, right. I think just, just the, like, look, uh, the way he coached us was the way that we needed to be coached because we were such a young side, right? You know, he was obviously a taskmaster, made sure that everything was diligent. We're in our preparation, in the, in everything that we did, like, Running lines, the the style of training, being the, the accuracy that we needed. Um, he really pushed us. Um, so to, uh, to reach uh, all sorts of levels, you know, and and, and um, I think uh, I, I can't really say I have any stories, I guess, but just his coaching style. For us at the at that time was exactly what we needed. Yeah, and just there, Joe, you were saying uh, before that you learned how to look after your body a bit better. Like, what would it be a small little thing that the rest of us could do, us amateur players could do, to get like a small thing to make a big difference? What would you recommend? Hydration, bro. <laughs> Hydration, honestly, it it is. So small, but 
I reckon like people would go through a day probably only having like five or six cups of water, you know? And, and I, the fact that I started monitoring my hydration throughout the day now um, has sort of changed not only my performance, but my, my mental state as well. Like I, I feel like I'm a lot clear headed during the day and yeah, like it's weird, right? Saying like the best, the best advice I can give people is just keep drinking water. <laughs> but, but that's so what sport fun. is isn't it that's high performance yeah. for you the basics done incredibly well like, yeah that's high performance sport right there like oh yeah man and the hydration would probably definitely be something so if there's any kids out there make sure you drink your water drink your kids water yeah. drink your water kids <laughs> yeah <laughs> drink your kids <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't recommend the latter that's for sure no <laughs> Did, and we, did um, go on, go on, Adam. Sorry, uh, we kind of talked about uh, Montpellier a while ago, but I want to get on to Leinster. Obviously, behind me here, I have Toman Park, so you can imagine <laughs> what I think of Leinster. But what was it like for you walking into to Leinster, that Leinster setup? Like, it, I assume it's pretty, pretty high quality out, out there. Yeah. Oh man, it, it was an unbelievable experience as well. And, and see, this is the thing, right? Like. This is why I couldn't choose a favorite because I've been to so many great clubs, you know, and I've been unbelievably fortunate to be a part of like all the teams that I'm a part of. Um, but you know, going going to Lenser was probably the the best thing for my game to develop because sure Lancaster had a huge influence on how I needed to, I guess, view the game. He, he helped me develop my my skill set because I was transitioning from wing to centre uh, when I came over to Europe and yeah, going, going to Leicester really developed my skill set in, in, in a great way and then obviously um, when you play with the likes of like Johnny Sexton who makes you look good anyway <laughs> and you know and, and then you got guys like James Lowe running off you Jordan Lama like Rob Carney, like I could sit here for hours and just name players. Like Tyke Furlong is probably the most skillful guy. I've, like for like you know pound for pound, pound for pound, he's probably the most skillful guy I've played with. He's insane. He's incredible. He's so right. good, so so good. Uh, but um, Adam, you look like you're on the edge of tears there when he's describing the Irish squad. You're like, oh, the Irish boys. <laughs> Todd Paul, pound for pound. Oh, loving, he didn't, loving it. Wait till he says something about Peter O'Man, you know him. That, <laughs> that'll do it. But um, Joe, obviously you're saying you transition there from the wing to the centres. We all know that Leinster loop. Like how many reps are you doing of that loop a week? You know that like they do it every single play in early. Like how many reps did it take for you to perfect it? Oh, jeez. I've, I've done a lot of those reps <laughs> and um, you know, it, it's crazy because we critique every single aspect of, of these plays, um, you know, and that's probably what makes them so great. Like one of my first sessions there was just a simple 
like we start off with like a simple catch and pass and it was in maybe like a 10 meter grid and we'll throw in maybe like two two meter passes and for some reason they had a camcorder there like recording us doing that I thought okay but this is a simple catch and pass drill like do we really need to record it anyway we reviewed our passing technique like the next day and we're just going through every single minor detail whether it was catching the ball early to where our hand placement was onto the ball to the way we threw the pass whether our hands dropped underneath our hips like just every single tiny aspect um, of that little passing drill we reviewed and that's probably why like you know those those loop plays look like they're they're doing it in their sleep just because that's how they review. Like usually you review teams and how they play, but you know, they're reviewing. Are you catching the ball early? Where's your hand on the ball? What's the last finger that is touching the ball when you release the pass? Like, is your hands dropping underneath your hips to cause that little loop? Like, is that are you losing milliseconds off of that? Like it's it's Kobe Bryant stuff type of like where where does that yeah, uh, from who does that attention to detail come from is that is that uh, Johnny Sexton's influence is it Stuart Lancaster is there any key decision makers make that's driving forward that sort of analysis well I think I think it's all it it, it was all of them like um, Johnny Johnny wasn't actually he was in the Irish setup when we were reviewing that. So there was obviously a lot of young guys, which is, and you know Stuart was was leading that and showing us, like you know, reviewing all of our technique and and whatnot. And but in terms of the standard, I, I think uh, Stuart Lancaster made a real big deal of making sure that the standards were pushed and led by the players, um, and that he's real big on having a culture of the culture being pushed and led by the, by the playing group and not so much the coaching staff. Yeah. And I can imagine in that Leinster squad, like who some of them personalities would be, but like, would, would there be any players surprise us that would be driving that culture that we wouldn't necessarily see on the TV or you wouldn't hear about them. Obviously we know sex tend to be big for driving standards. Like we know James Ryan, we know Sean O'Brien when he was there. But is there anyone that would surprise us? Um, <clears throat> you know, a lot, a lot of the young guys actually. Uh, yeah. And, and maybe like a lot of the guys that we probably don't get to, you don't often hear of because of, you know, um, because of those guys were so like their aura especially on the international stage was massive, you know, but Ross Byrne was, he was a hard taskmaster as well, you know, and he, he, he drove standards. Um, obviously, you know, he's a 10. So 10s are, you, they're naturally going to drive the standard team because, you know, they're, they're the, they're the quarterback, you know, they're, they're driving us around the field and, Things need to be done a certain way for, for him to be able to um, get us around the park. And 
Um, then you've got guys like uh, Jamison Gibson Park, who's probably seems quiet, but man, that guy is ultra competitive and will compete for everything. Like, super competitive but then you you hang out with him off the field and he's just this quite sweet uh young man and it's it's crazy you just wouldn't think that an ultra competitive spirit would be in such a sweet person <laughs> <laughs> i can imagine yeah. i can imagine um and you're saying off oh, field there like what would be the off field activities that you would have done in dublin what would have been the, the big thing to do uh, I actually picked up golf. A lot of the boys golf. And I hadn't golfed before, but, you know, the Aussie and me said, yeah, I'll have a go. Yeah, just like from earlier. Yeah, and then I caught the bug and spent about 3,000 euros on um, custom-made golf clubs. <laughs> Let's call it without, an investment. Yeah, without telling my wife. And then now, <laughs> now I, I, I'm... I keep telling her that I need an upgrade. Like, I need to get blades, babe. Like, <laughs> my shot shaping. I can't shot shape as well as with these ones, you know? Cause <laughs> but you're on blades. So, like, the handicap is no, probably no. below 10, so is no, it? No, no, I'm definitely not on blades. She, um, she humbles me very quickly. <laughs> She's, as soon as you can you know, shoot a good score with these ones, I'll, I'll let you get whatever. And No, I'm not on blades, unfortunately. So what handicap are we looking at? Oh, I haven't played in a while now because uh, playing golf in Japan is quite expensive. So you never got to, never got to play much. But um, you know, there was a. I probably got down to maybe a fifteen when I was in in Ireland, which is you know I'm pretty happy with that because I was you know, I only just picked it up, mind you. Like when I first started playing golf in Ireland, I bought my first set of clubs and then tore my hamstring off the bone maybe like three weeks later. So they just were house decorations for the next six six months because I couldn't <laughs> play. Um, yeah. So. And, and who'd been like the big hitters in the, the Leinster squad there now? Like anyone with a 300-yard drive? Oh, actually, Dan Levy can hit a bomb. Oh, he... He looks like a fellow who hit a bomb. He's another guy that drives standards and is an incredibly competitive guy as well. Uh, but man, he can he can hit a ball. Uh, and then you got someone like Scott Flaherty, who's yeah, just you know you know you know those old fellows at the club that have been playing for years, don't hit it that far, but just can get their way around the course. Like he's he's one of those players. Like you you think he, he hasn't hit any nice shots or anything and then you look at the end of the round and he's hit like a bloody 79 or something like how the hell did you hit a 79 <laughs> do you do you keep in touch with any of the boys yeah a lot of the boys um my wife actually was just in dublin recently she caught up with with a few of the girls and obviously in- introduced them to to mario yeah yeah uh, which was which was awesome um but man like, yeah like i keep in touch with that a lot of the guys that I've played with in the past, it's it's so cool just, you know, seeing a lot of, lot of how their careers have progressed. And so, you know, uh, we send each other messages saying, oh, congrats and this and blah, blah, blah. 
I mean, you're in Ireland, bro. Like you, you probably see James Lowe's face everywhere. He's doing ads galore. I mean, uh, I'm in Ireland, but I live in Cork now, Joe. So James Lowe's oh, yeah. face is far from my billboards. It'd be Peter O'Mahony, <laughs> Connor Murray, um, White Zebo walking around the English market. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah, uh, we've like one. We're very patriotic in Munster now. If if a Leinster oh, yeah. fella's on our billboard, they're they're yeah, well true. deserved to be there, you know. Probably, yeah, uh, fair enough. <laughs> Adam, what but, happens? Uh, what happens to a Leinster fan if they're wearing a Leinster top in months in in the Munster in that area? Oh, it wouldn't happen, Hamish. You'd see a lot of Munster fans up in Dublin now wearing our jerseys, but you'd never see a Leinster fan wearing their jersey in Cork. To be honest, yeah, that's not even trying to dig. It's just true. <laughs> but uh, straight facts. <laughs> but Joe, you were saying there that you keep in um, in touch with a few guys you would have played with before. So obviously you would have had like Adam Ashley Cooper, Matt Ghetto, who went over to MLR. Uh, I don't know if you ever played at Billy Meeks, um, but he's obviously he was over there as well. Would you have any ambitions of seeing the US or? I was actually looking. Uh, I was actually looking that that was one of the options of going to the US uh, before I came to Biarritz. Um, you know, leaving Japan, we probably wanted a lifestyle change. Uh, and, you know, America was, in terms of lifestyle, was um, looked very enticing, but so was, so was the southwest of France, you know. Uh, but I think because it, it just would have been cool to be a part of a competition that's growing as well in America and has a lot of potential to be successful. And I think uh, could be the thing that might save rugby as well. Like you look at this current situation in our sport right now, the participation levels uh, amongst the youth is, you know, slowly dwindling um, in, in a lot of the big countries. Have you uh, which seen... Is, uh... Have you seen what's been going on in the Premiership with Wasps and Worcester Warriors getting going into administration? Oh man, it's, it's so sad, you know. Like a lot of guys losing their livelihood, um, and I guess like it, it, it's real sad for the sport because you know, you know those, those fans are, are proud fans. Yeah, um, and for them to lose something that was a part of their part of their town um just it's just horrible to see you know like especially for them like you imagine someone who was a a wasp supporter for you know 20 years to all of a sudden seeing the team that he supported almost his whole life just not exist anymore like it's but do you think joe that um like rugby should push out more like controversy per se like they should push more like the individuals i know rugby values would say it's uh we before me but i i've bought an nba jersey i have a steph curry on the back i've bought soccer jerseys i've ronaldo on the back like these guys kind of push on they get the mainstream fans interested then you're going to watch that team and hence watch more of the sport in rugby we're all we before me. I know they have put the numbers on the back of jersey or the names on the back of jerseys for the autumn internationals. Like, do you think 
we should push more the individual rather than the collective at the moment. Would that help grow the game? What do you think? Um, interesting question. You know, I think the reason why rugby was so successful in the 90s was the culture that it created. And, and part of that culture was the we before me, you know? And that's what brought a lot of um, mainstream fans to our sport because it gave them a sense of community. Um, if we go away from our traditional values of what made our game so great, then to gain popularity, well, have we really gained much? We've, we've, lost, we've lost the value of what made our sport so great to gain something that is, is it really worth it? I, and I think, but I think there is instances where you should be able to allow the player to, to market himself a little more. And that's hard, right? Because it, it almost seems like when you signed a, a contract, you're also signed on to their, their sponsors as well. So, for example, it, it'd be pretty hard for a rugby player to go if their jerseys were made by Adidas. Well, then, if the star player wanted to go sign with Nike and, and have his face plastered all over Nike shops, like, would Adidas kick up a stink saying, hey, like, why is your star player promoting a, a competitive brand? Like that, that happened, whereas in sports like soccer and basketball, that happens, you know? Ronaldo, for example, is the biggest face of Nike and Real Madrid was sponsored by Adidas. 100%. So, yeah. like, so it, 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 there's, there's probably ways where, in which we're limiting players to actually be individuals as well. Um, so I think there's obviously a fine balance. Like you can't completely individualize the game because what made the game so popular was the we before me sense that it gave people, gave people a sense of community to be a part of. Um, I look at rugby as sort of like um, it has a cult following like college football in America. 100%. Yeah. You know, play, when players turn pro, they, they bounce around from like team to team. But you ask them what, uh, what the university and they stand there pledging their bloody uni song or whatever. Or they're like going, oh, D, I'm from the Ohio State. <laughs> you know, and, and that's what that's what rugby has. That rugby has that kind of cult following. Even even for uni students who go to those colleges, they go into business, but they'll tell you what college they went to. Hundred <laughs> percent. Right. So and, and rugby. That that's that's what rugby has. You know, like yourself. You you, you just said before. You know, um, you would never see a, a a Leinster fan walking around Cork with a Leinster jersey, like. 
you have that sense of community and that's what rugby has. And I think the best way for us to grow the game is to try and monetize that. 100%. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, Joe. I think another format that we could use is, um, being from Australia, I take it you'd watch a small bit of cricket, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you, you obviously have your big bash league, your IPL. Like, we obviously have rugby sevens as an Olympic sport. So you could maybe start a sevens league, a professional sevens league that goes on for one month of the year. And you could have the likes, you could have Joe Tamani, you could have... Um, a rugby league sensation. You could have someone like James Tedesco. You could have like all the top talent in the world in rugby sevens. Rugby sevens, the squad numbers don't correlate to a position like in rugby union. So you're not mm-hmm. forfeiting that. Rugby sevens at the moment would not have the same cult following or same feeling that you described. Like I wouldn't have the same affinity to watching the Irish sevens as I do to Munster. So do you think the short and format could be a success or do you think that's just a pipe dream what would you think i think it could i mean it attracts the the average man to go to to all these tournaments you see all the tournaments that they go on like especially back in the days when hong kong sevens was absolutely pumping like you'd have every single man who's getting married would say let's go do my stag do at hong kong sevens just get dressed up party, you know, you know, it, it created that sort of vibe um, for, for the average fan. And, you know, a lot of the times, maybe those guys probably weren't even interested in rugby. They were just saw the, the spectacle. Um, I, I think rugby does need some sort of a spectacle, but you, you look at the calendar, the calendar is pretty jam packed. Like where do you put it? Um, and if you do put it, what do you cut out? And then, uh, you know, eventually someone's not going to be happy because someone will be missing out or someone will have to take a pay cut for, or be missing out on a bit of cash just to make this. But then do they, you have to, at times you probably just have to do what's best for the sport to create the buzz, you know? But, I think it could be like a, a Barbar's style, Barbarian style selection where the players that aren't playing for, internationals say the you've got the autumn internationals are all in europe at the moment you could have like a mini tournament that's going on during this period for the players that haven't been selected so you're, you're, you've got all your big names that have mm. this chance that uh, a roster let's say to then host uh, show what show off their skills show their they're the big bees knees and uh also give them a chance to get good game time and show what they've got yeah, that's, that's cool, man. And I actually, to go on your point, it also might give guys a, a chance to get another gig as well. Yeah. If you turn, in, turn into, like, create another spectacle, like, there could be guys that, like, aren't getting much game time that other clubs might have seen or know too much, and then they play in this sort of stuff and say, oh, you know, might get noticed and pick up something, you know? Uh, but then I guess the only way that could, something like that could work is if you shortened like the, the league competitions, you know, like you probably have to shorten the premiership and shorten all the other professional comps to, to fit it in. Um, yeah. 
and whether like the teams will be willing to do that, who knows. On that, Joe, a while ago we were talking about America and how America could help save the sport. So the NFL, they only play 16 regular season games. Why in rugby do we feel we have to have these big, long seasons when, like, you've played for Leinster and you mentioned there Johnny Sexton. Like, as a fan, I know when I'm watching Leinster during the Irish, when the Irish team are away, Johnny Sexton's not in the pitch. Tyg Furlong's not in the pitch. Keen Healy's not in the pitch. If they reduce the amount of games that everyone played every team once, then we know that when the Sharks or the Stormers play against Leinster, we know we're getting Stephen Kitts off versus Tyg Furlong. We know that even Estevez will be playing versus James Ryan. You can promote these matchups because they, you know they will happen. Whereas in, the, in current rugby, we're playing a lot of matches and these top guys, simply, it's impossible for them to play every match. Like, do you think we're pushing it out to get more matches in, but it's lower quality, per se, games than if we shortened it and just had all the top boys all the time? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way to, to look at things. I mean, I Super Rugby was like that when I was playing. So we had... Our season started in February and the finals were in June, July, July. But then we also had like your your the that little June test window with uh, the touring European sides. Um, so I think when you watch Super Rugby in the past, you saw the best teams available playing week in, week out for their club. Um, and then on the flip side of that, when the international window started, it, it was sort of the same. I mean, but I guess in Europe, you know, that they're, they're able to develop the talent pool so much more by having these long seasons as well and giving a lot of these young guys invaluable minutes. Um, so <laughs> it's kind of hard to say, like, well, what do you, what do you, who do you want to, appease you know do you want to appease the the fans and, and give them the best teams week in week out for Leinster but then we might miss out on seeing your your uh, dang seeing you know your young stars sort of just come through those uh, Jordan Larimer's back yeah, in the day Ross Burns Gavin Coombs from Munster wouldn't have got yeah. to go. Craig Casey, the great Craig Casey's like like he's a he's an Irish international now, like and yeah. you know he he had to work his way through like he was behind um, Connor Murray. Connor Murray, like you know, so yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of hard, like you. With what in one way you you win, but in others ways you probably won't be able to see like yeah. So I'm, I'm maybe maybe not shortening it too much, but but maybe if you shorten it just a little, 
yeah, just a, it's, a little. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely not black and white anyway. It's, yeah. like, it's very grey, but I think there's definitely room to shorten it. And I think maybe another little competition to help develop these guys, because as we were on about college football a while ago, like they're coming, like your superstars are coming out of 21, you know, like Michael Jordan and NBA would have came out of 21. All the best of the best come out of 21. The rest of the guys are 22, 23, 24. They develop later. So like mm-hmm. rugby, our superstars still come out at the same time, 20, 21, 22. And then the guys come later. So we need to develop the next level. We need another tournament to do that. I, I feel, but that's just my opinion. You know, there's oh, another yeah. thing that I think uh, that rugby could be better at. And, like, I think people outside of, like, that aren't playing the games could actually draw more interest to, to the current crop of players. Um, and, you, you know, like, I, I watch how, like, I, I'm fascinated by, like, the, a lot of these sports debates that happen in, in the United States and how much drama it... Um, creates you know like i don't know if you guys have watched ever watched undisputed in america skip bayless and shannon sharp like yeah like as as someone who doesn't live in america watching that that like how they have these heated debates and and they're breaking down every single aspect of uh and of the game and, and just going at it like that creates interest for me like maybe we could look at doing things like that for rugby, creating like creating more comps. Co- yeah, controversies. Well, don't talk about the controversies, but more so just talk about you know. Oh, well, for example, let's let's just say oh you know let's compare Owen Farrell to to Johnny Sexton. Like, who do you think is the da da da? And then just have guys like just debate that topic, and that creates that creates a vibe and then that's where the tribalism sort of comes in. So Joel, Owen Farrell or Johnny Sexton, who's better? Oh, I might have to be biased, eh? <laughs> 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 but uh, man, I, I had pleasure playing with Johnny Sexton. Owen Farrell's an unbelievable player. Um, if you look at the, like, it's almost hard to, to pick who's a better player because you look at the body work that they've both been able to do. Um, European Championships, winning Pro 14s versus Premierships. Um, you know, they've, they've done it all and they've achieved it all. Um, I think where it gets disrespectful is like, there's a lot of a lot of people who are Premiership fans that say that Pro 14 isn't like a, as a strong a competition as Premierships and the Premiership and whatever. And uh, it, to me, I, I reckon that's, that stuff is sort of irrelevant because... Johnny Sexton's also won four European Cups. And, yeah. Um, Play, teams are yeah. playing play soft competitions. They'll win four European Cups, right? Like, yeah. You know? Yeah, it's crazy. And um, just just wrapping it up here, what we like to do at the uh, end of the podcast is we like to do a quick fire round of the uh, fan questions. Okay. Uh, so we've had some fans send in their questions, as you saw earlier, and uh, we'll just uh, give give a few round, and uh, we'll chuck in a few of our own as well. So Adam, if if you've got any quick fire round questions you want to chuck in, 
feel free. Are these, are, are these questions just come from you or are they actual fans that ask you? <laughs> oh no, there's 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 a mixture between fan questions and and questions that we wanna we wanna ask for the for the uh, audience. <laughs> Sweet, so the first question is asked. I think this person probably probably knows you pretty well. He says, "How much do you spend on golf clubs a year that don't get used?" Asking for a friend. Uh, that's James Lowe for sure. I bet you. Um, <laughs> well, I've already answered that question, and uh, they still don't get used because my wife hasn't given me my golf card back. But uh, hopefully, they'll be getting used soon. It's come from Elliot Dixon. Oh, <laughs> oh Elliot. Uh, the, ne the next question is from Baptiste. Uh, what are your ambitions with Beeritz? Uh, obviously, to get back, well, to get back into the top 14, but I don't want to do it in style and I'd want to do it by winning Pro Um Yeah. You know, like it, I think it'd be just really gratifying to. Um, to win the comp and then go up. I think this team, this town deserves it, man. Like the, the team is, is etched into every bit of this town. They, they love and support this team. And, and I think to, to give them something to be proud of would be um, amazing and an amazing achievement and feeling, not only for the playing group, but for the town. I totally agree. I, I've got a lot of friends in the Basque country, so uh, I, I know how they feel about their ruggers. Yeah. Uh, the, the next uh, question is from Hugo. He asks, what is your favourite meal? My favourite meal? I've, I've actually uh, changed my diet up a little bit because um, obviously good friends with Quay Cooper and saw that he was going on a carnival journey and thought I'd give that a crack. And... Um, you know, Basque Country is actually known for its Cote de Boeuf, so I've been yeah. ripping into a few of those. And uh, is that is that a keto diet then? Would would that be the title of a keto diet? Um, just carnivore diet sort of thing. Yeah, it's it's basically just uh, a lot of meat. <laughs> so so do you are you have you got quite a close relationship with Quade Cooper? Yeah, man. Like we we've been friends for. for for a long time, like we played against each other in high school. Uh, he went to Churchy and I went to Nudgy. Um, and then uh, we also have like uh, mutual friends who aren't rugby players. Like, um, what about uh, one of his closest mates, uh, Danny, is also a good friend. Danny uh, in Brisbane is also uh, a close friend of mine as well. And he actually got me into the crypto game as well. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, it, it's just crazy how like Brisbane's such a small place, and like you know our paths always seem to cross ways. And, uh, and Quade's actually helped me a lot with with my game as well. And, um, he's always been such a positive influence to me. And uh, yeah, yeah, I think he's like yourself. He's got a very um, very nice outlook on life in the way that. He's very humble about everything he does, and he's very uh, self-aware, like yourself, and as we've seen in this podcast. Well, see, a, a, a lot of the stuff that you see from me, you probably uh, you get from him. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a guy who likes to draw inspiration from a lot of things around me, and he's definitely one of those guys that I that inspire me. 
in terms of crypto there, Joe, what projects inspire you there? Is that the Tugs? Um, I can't remember the first thing, but the Tugs, T-H-U-G-Z. No. Oh, Trillionaire Thugs, yeah. Thugs. Trillionaire Thugs. I bought that project. Uh, I bought a couple of the um, the Thugs. Uh, it's, it's actually a, a friend of mine who I went to school with, Sam Ratamotabuki, who started that uh, with a, a few of his mates. Um, yeah, it, it was a really cool part. It's cool because, you know, me and Sam grew up in Logan. Um, and to see him go and progress and become who he is, uh, and and to achieve what he's done from like we we grew up in in a pretty rough poor area in south of Brisbane, and and now he's bloody a business mogul. Yeah. Um, it's just cool to see him, and obviously I had to support my man. Hundred percent. Yeah, he's seen. I'd be into the crypto as well, and um, I remember seeing Gilly's Kaka had it yeah. as his his actual picture on Instagram was one of them. And then I was like, what's this? There's a rugby, some rugby link yeah. to this. But you just <laughs> told me who it is. Now your buddy yeah. Sam. So yeah, I'll have to look more into that. Does it, do, a lot of these crypto things though are, have been linked to pump and dump schemes though, haven't they? Yeah, man. And, th- and that's obviously the, the, the risks of um, sort of, investing in these sort of things so it's really important to do your do your research in that but i think what it got me into it the most was the fact that it was it's a decentralized currency um and, and the decentralization part is really what um i like about it you have full control of your what you do and your decisions so um and yeah. and i i kind of like that because I could easily, uh, I'm a guy that would, you know, say if, if I make a mistake, I'll own it. So if I invest in something that's poor, <laughs> it's, I've got no one else to blame but myself. But, you know, yeah. if, if there's things that are sort of out of my control, then that, that's what seems to annoy me. <laughs> For anyone listening to the podcast, guys, as Joe said, do your own research. This is not financial advice. Definitely not. <laughs> That's good. Definitely not financial advice. Back to the uh, quick fire from the fans. I've just written down the questions so I can read them out quickly. We've got best dance move. Best dance move. Oh, geez, I'm not much of a dancer anymore, eh? But uh, I've been known to do the Dougie back in the day. The Dougie? Not anymore. My knees, my knees don't allow it anymore. But back in the day when I was young, I used to be able to Dougie. Very nice. Uh, Arnaud, a French boy, I'm guessing, while well, his answer, his question is very French, asks, what's your favorite French expression? Uh, I can't curse on this podcast, can I? Both yeah, you can, funny. you can. Oh. <laughs> uh, I didn't know this, eh? But like, um, when I first came in uh, into Beirut, um, you know, I'm, I'm quite a chatty kind of guy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And a lot of the boys would just look at me and go, Tagel, Tagel. Well, yeah, Tagel or whatever. And I'm like, oh, you must like what I'm saying. Da, da, da. And I asked one of the other boys, he's, oh, no, he's just telling you to just be quiet a little bit. It's a lot stronger like, than that, though. Yeah, I found out today what I actually meant. <laughs> for, the, uh, 
for the fans that don't know what we're talking about, ferme ta gueule in French is the equivalent of saying shut the fuck F up, up, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for uh, the language. <laughs> so they, they, you know, they are, that's slowly uh, now it's become my favorite because it's uh, it's just funny. Though. I just yeah. This whole time, I thought I was getting along with these guys, and they were actually telling me something. Top uh, three players of all time from Jimbo Rutherford. Oh, uh, in legal union. Union. Okay. Uh, top three players of all time. In no particular order, I'll say. Jonah Lomu, mm -hmm. George Smith, Dan Carter. Solid. I know uh, that I'm probably going to get a lot of stick about not picking Richie McCall, but I just think uh, Richie McCall, it, it, to me, kind of just reminds me of like a Tom Brady who's just won everything. But... Um, George Smith's just ability in everything, in every aspect of the game. The man could could do it all, you know, as a as a flanker. What was it like playing with him? Oh, it was unreal. I roomed with him as well in Dunedin. That was cool. Pardon, sorry. I roomed with him in yeah. Dunedin where we played against the Highlanders, and the first thing he said to me is, "Oh, bro, he pushed like we had like two king size beds, like in our room." He was, "Oh, bro, he pushed the two beds together so I could sleep on him." <laughs> and I'll, I'll just I'll just put your pillow and blanket on the couch like just obviously taking the piss and I was like here I was like, yeah sure man <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Joe there you were saying union or league so I take it who are your top three in league uh, Cam Smith oh man I'm gonna sound really biased eh? Cam Smith Billy Slater Greg Inglis. All your ex-teammates, aren't they? Yeah. Three guys that made me really good. 100%. Oh, there's some players, in fairness, all three of them. Like, G.I. Oh. is some freak. Mate, like, just... And, and Latron Mitchell's got a bit of, like, Greg Inglis in him, like, just his abilities. Now, he's someone that I think, if he wanted to transition into union... If he wanted to transition into uni, he could have and dominated. Like he's just unbelievable. Yeah. And could Billy Slater have transitioned, do you think? Definitely. Because he had he, he had he had the full package. He could defend, he was fit, he was fast, he could pass, he could kick. It's unbelievable under the high ball. His support play is unreal. Like they're, they're all the makings of a top fullback. Nice, nice. Talking of, uh, we did have another question related to rugby league. They they asked out of Israel Folau and Sonny Bill Williams, who was a better league player from James Ho? Oh, I love Izzy. And you know, there's obviously no disrespect to what he did to the game, uh, did for the game. Um, but Sonny Bill, like, to win it at the Bulldogs, leave, come back, 
and from from all accounts, like when he went to the Roosters, cha completely changed the culture or was a huge part of uh, changing the culture there. Um, and then winning a title with the Roosters, like you can't, you, you got to respect that man. Like, yeah, he won it with two different teams, and was an integral part of. Even though he was young when he won at the Bulldogs, like he had some big key moments in 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 that final series that that helped him win, and then obviously goes to the Roosters and and was a huge part of their success there as well. I think you'd have to say Sonny Bill. He's a very impressive athlete. I think that's for oh, sure. Oh, he's unbelievable. And he's a great boxer. But... Who'd and win he... the fight? Sonny Bill or Paul Gallen? Oh, now, now we're talking. Okay, because, you know, they're two completely different boxing styles, right? you got got um, Sonny Bill, which has to utilize his length, quick jump, shab, and his athleticism. But then you got someone like Gallen who just won't, uh, won't stop coming forward. I think it'd be, it'd be, stylistically speaking, it'd be a great fight. I mean, I love my boxing, but, you know, there could be some boxing fans on here that could be saying that I don't know what I'm talking about. But from my opinion, uh, it, it could go either way. You know, you could, Gallon could, could make him miss and be countering his... Um, countering him while moving in, or Sonny Bill could just pick him apart with his jab um, and, and his athleticism and footwork. Would you ever get in the ring yourself? Oh, I'd do it for charity. Yeah. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't take professional enough because uh, I think I, um, like I, I have a lot of respect for the craft and the effort that it takes to make it big in boxing. Like um, I follow like a couple of like the up and coming stars and what they have to do to, to get the big fights and to get the big money fights and sell out arenas. Like they obviously got to do it in, in the RSL clubs first in front of like 10 people playing the pokies, you know, but I, I respect that grind and I think I'd only ever do it if it was for charity. And Joe, if you're having this charity fight, which rugby player would you not like to see across from you? Uh, oh. I think, uh, Jesus, there's a lot. Like, how much time you got? I could go for a whole list of players that I'm <laughs> So not including Sonny Bill or Paul Gallen, you have to pick one fella you would not like to fight. I'd probably say someone like uh, Mauro Itoje because of his supreme athleticism, like he'd have the height, the reach, the weight, and probably the, and definitely the power advantage over me. And he's super fit. Like, uh, I'll be fucking uphill the whole fight. You know, <laughs> <laughs> good choice, good choice. Yeah, he's he's a freak. He's a freak. So we we finish the episode every week with a with a question from the player from the podcast from the previous uh, episode. So the player we had on last week was Jamal Ford Robinson, who plays for Gloucester, and he wanted to ask you specifically, 
what is the one non-rugby related thing that you've added to your life that has improved your rugby? Uh, yeah, it's going to be deep, but, uh, you know, in 2014, I, uh, I got baptized again in Canberra, um, 2010, I gave myself to, to my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, um, on the Gold Coast because I was in, I was in a bit of a hole that I dug myself in. Um, and then 2014, I got baptized. And I think my relationship with Jesus Christ has been my saving grace, man. But I add, you know, through all the trials and tribulations I've sort of gone through through my career, he's also given me so much. I like just the opportunities that I've been given with all the injuries that like, for example, man, the last sort of six to seven years, I've lived in three different, four different, uh, three different countries. But if you were to ask me as a 10 year old, Oh, do you ever think you'd live in Japan? Or do you ever think you'd live in France? Or do you ever think you'd live in Dublin? Um, when you get older, like, I, I firmly said, no, nah, man, I'm, I'm staying in Logan, <laughs> you know, like that's the sort of area that I grew up in. And then uh, to be given all the experiences that I've had, even though I've gone through so much, like having the hamstring, then the two jaw surgeries in, in Japan and, um, and all that, I'm, I think having a relationship with Jesus Christ has really um, kept me on but somewhat straight and narrow. I mean, I'm by no means perfect. Uh, I've obviously made mistakes and I'll probably will continue to make mistakes, but having that relationship has really just, has been a huge reason as to why my headspace is where it's at, you know? You know, I, I think having listened to you throughout these one and a half hours podcast, I would highly recommend any person to listen to this podcast the amount of value and compelling answers you've brought to the stage as well as entertainment has been phenomenal and i appreciate that man (laughs) you've been very sincere and and integral and uh yeah it's been a pleasure to have you on uh, as a guest oh man i really do appreciate you guys giving me the opportunity to i guess just chew the fat man hang out yeah what uh, go on oh yeah i'm just saying like man like i I'm really grateful that you guys gave me this opportunity. And, you know, if you ever want to do this again, I'm down. Be a pleasure. Just out of interest, because, you know, we're, we're, just, we're quite a fairly new podcast. What was it about? I think it's an interesting question to ask, but what made you want to come on the podcast? What intrigued you, uh, given the fact that we're su- such a new podcast? You asked, man. You, know, you, you just asked. And I was like, yeah, bro, like, I'm down for a chat. Like, like I, I couldn't care less if you guys had two followers or a million followers. You know, I was just down to have a chat and hang out and and uh, you know get get as like you guys gave me as much as I'd hopefully have given you guys as well. You know, like um, 
And that's what I'm grateful for, bro. Like, I, I was just down to just have a conversation, you know, and and just share life experiences with other people, bro. And, that, and that's, what, that's what it's all about, really. I think you've nailed that one on the head, I have to admit. So if anyone else wants to go on the podcast, bro, just ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll, uh, we'll be sure to uh, keep on getting the guests on for sure. If it can bring a bit of light and help, happiness and helpfulness to the, the listeners. And uh, for those of you that don't follow you on Instagram, where, where, can, where can people find you? Uh, I'm at Joe Tomain. Uh, pretty simple. I got like a little blue NFT um, as my profile pic. Oh, yeah. Um, I'll probably change that soon just so you know it's actually me. <laughs> <laughs> and sure. uh, yeah, man. I, I'm on Twitter as well, but I, I don't really tweet. I, I do a lot of retweeting. If you want to follow me and see all my retweets, <laughs> I'm on a Joe Tomei29 as well. Perfect. All right. Thank you, everyone, for listening. It's been a nice episode with Joe Tomei, and we'll catch you in the next round. See you. Cheers, See you guys. later, guys. Uh, Joe, we'll keep you on for a second.